Hello and welcome to episode 365 of the Crate and Crowbar. It is the 16th of April, 2021. My name is Chris Thurston and tonight I am joined by Graham Smith. Hello. Tom Francis. Hello. And Alex Wiltshire. Hello. Is 365 a number that we mark because it's the amount of regular days in a year? This is the question that I was asked, just asking myself while waiting for enough time to pass that we could just <laughs> cancel the rest of the episode, including possibly this. I feel like, didn't we have a podcast recently where we were saying this? Because I remember you, Chris, saying that, that it's enough for one podcast every day of the year and what a terrible year that would be. <laughs> See, I was thinking that now because now it is enough. So if I said that previously, I was wrong. Am I in a time loop? <laughs> <laughs> it's a question we've all been asking ourselves. Um, nonetheless, 365. Wow, what an achievement. You could now listen to an episode of the podcast every day of the year. You could, um, have, you could have an episode of the podcast all the way around a circle plus five. That's true. Five extra. <laughs> that would get you like the little like belt catch. You could print the podcast on every degree of a belt. <laughs> <laughs> which I, pre I presume need to be 360 units long. There's no other way to divide a circle. No. <laughs> Clocks don't exist. <laughs> Shit, you're right. They do. <laughs> this, you, there are enough podcasts to make a second generation Xbox plus five. <laughs> Isn't yeah, because we, we made jokes about like oh i know what it was it was it was when we hit 360 um because mm. we were making jokes we made the 360 joke and saying like the next podcast would just be called Quake and crowbar one mm. we could just go back to that if you like that seems better than, <laughs> than <this. laughs> I in, a, in a previous situation of this time loop i remember a good joke <laughs> i haven't i haven't done the podcast i think since that episode and so apparently I'm just going to do the, the same one again, <laughs> if that's all right with, every, right with everybody else. Uh, and okay. Tom's just going to think nostalgically about numbers jokes. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> I was thinking maybe there's something like Xbox 360S. The S is kind of like a five, that's 365, but no, it's nothing. It's nothing. It's less than nothing. It's garbage. Um, good. How are you? Yeah. Yeah, right. <laughs> We passed the test. <laughs> has there been any news? I don't think so. Actually, no, there has been. We discussed this already, didn't we? <laughs> <laughs> it's going well so far. Don't yeah. reveal that. <laughs> I, I wanted just to like sort of wordlessly point to the existence of Oxen Free 2 uh, mm. and then add some words to the wordlessness, which is to say that... Um, <laughs> Uh, it's cool that that exists. It's cool that there's going to be one. I really like Oxen Free. Um, yeah. I will say the trailer they showed. I would not have been able to tell you that that wasn't footage of Oxen Free One. Like <laughs> I literally couldn't notice anything different. But uh, that's fine. It can be the same thing. <laughs> I'm happy. There wasn't a lot that I would improve about it either. You know, there wasn't anything that sort of you've had to sort of slot onto that game to make it better. Would really. Yeah, and it, it wasn't like a, an exploration adventure game. It wasn't about like going to traveling the globe and seeing amazing new places. Um, so it's not too not too much of a problem if it's in another blue gray hilly area. <laughs> oh. <laughs> forgive me, and potentially forgive listeners at home. Oxenfree was the one with a radio in it. Yeah. Yes, and like where people could talk over each other. Yeah, yeah like, just like I demonstrated just then. <laughs> 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 uh, 
this is the oxen free too. Um, no, it's not. Um, I, I pretend I didn't say anything. I just wanted to clarify which game this was. Okay, I was more or less done. I think there's. Oh shit! <laughs> looks the same, but that's okay. That's <laughs> the summary. We're podcasting from first principles. It's like we've never done this before. <laughs> um, was there any other game news announcements? Uh, core the stories. Core. Thwar. What are you so impressed by, Alex? <laughs> core. Um, there's a there's a new um, there's a new game creation sort of platformy thing that sort of makes it able for people to make the games. But people who would normally make the games to make the games. Uh, Graham, you know like, about this. I feel like we're, I feel like we're talking from first principles, not just podcasting. Take it back a step. <laughs> All right, we're going to start with breathing, and we'll work all the way up. Um, Great. Yeah, core core is is basically Roblox with the graphical fidelity of Fortnite. Um, it, or you could say it's Roblox, but in, in the Unreal Engine. It's just come out in early access after a year of being in alpha. It's exclusively available on the Epic Game Store. And yeah, it's like a, a game creation platform and distribution platform. So you make games in it using assets you've created yourself or assets that they provide. Uh, you can make stuff in it without needing to know any programming. And then it makes it really easy to distribute that to the player base um, kind of through a sort of, oh, I don't want to use this word, but Epic like to talk a lot about the metaverse. <laughs> and it's kind of like the metaverse, you know, like there's a hub world. I prefer to say it's a bit like PlayStation Home. Yeah, as it was actually the PlayStation Home verse. <laughs> yeah, uh, and I am like, there's a line in the press release for this that I wanted to uh, wanted to mention. So, like, they've had, they've had a million players over the last year, and there's currently twenty thousand free playable games that people have made for it. But the press release has the line in it. In less than a year in alpha, Core has welcomed more than 1 million players and creators to the platform and introduced a level of disruption to game creation and play that's similar to how YouTube revolutionized video. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> uh, which is, you know... <laughs> I hadn't heard of it till today. <laughs> yeah. YouTube, meanwhile, is the world's second most popular website. <laughs> um, <laughs> I think they're maybe trying, claiming that they're running when they're not yet crawling. Um, but I have other reasons why I'm skeptical of this. Like, mainly around the fact that it does look like Fortnite. I can understand why, you know, Roblox, but it looks better, sounds on the face of it like it should be a, a good, compelling pitch. But I don't think how Roblox looks is a bug. I think it's a feature. Um in part because it means that it runs on everything, including low-spec machines, which is really important if you want the mm -hmm. game to be popular in countries where the population can't easily afford really expensive computing devices. And beyond um, that, like I think even in the in the West, um, uh, phones yeah. are the by the predominant way people play. Yeah, it's also it, it, Roblox kind of is very forgiving. You know, when, you, when the people who are making games in Roblox are amateurs, often very young, they're kids, they're teenagers, 
um, that it kind of supports that kind of muck around creativity. Like it doesn't matter that you don't know how to create really good high resolution textures, for example. Um, whereas that's not the case if your game is kind of like pitched at a level of Fortnite. Like if you want to create an asset that sits alongside the assets created by the actual creators of Core, um, then you're going to have to be pretty talented. You're going to have to have good experience with 3D tools and texturing tools and that sort of stuff. Uh, and so that's like you're raising the floor in a way that I think is going to exclude a lot of people and importantly is going to push them into creating more derivative stuff because they're going to use the assets that you've given them and rely on that stuff more. And I think that's already true of the 20,000 or so games that are on there. Like they, in this press release, they linked to a bunch of games that people have made in core. The first one they mention is a team-based multiplayer shooter called Infinity Arena, mm. which we'll, we'll put a link to it in the show notes. But the image of it is basically it's just Halo. Like it just has a Master Chief in the photo standing in a kind of grey corridor. Uh, it looks deeply uninspired, and I, I, I don't want to I don't want to poop on this thing because it's presumably created by a you know, an amateur developer who's just starting out and, you know, recreating something you like is a perfectly valid way to, to go about getting your start. Um, but Roblox is great because people create really creative and interesting things and ideas that don't exist already in AAA gaming. Whereas I feel like if you... But you like, I feel like the visual fidelity of this is a trap, essentially, that forces people or encourages people to create slightly scruffy looking recreations of games that already exist. Yeah. I think I feel kind of a bit more ambivalent about it where on one hand, so is, is, um, I don't know an awful lot about core, but, um, is the, um, the only way you access it through, uh, through PlayStation home or is there like a web interface as well? I don't actually know that. Like, as far as I know, there's no web interface and it's just done through, you download the launcher through the Epic Game Store and then the launcher is how you access the games. See, that that's the thing that I think would worry me if I was kind of, if I'd invested in Core because, um, like, well, that's one of the Roblox's great strengths is that, you know, you, you're, you're chatting to people um, you're talk, talking to your friends and you're on a web browser and you click the play button and it loads it in and bam, you're playing. And and anything that kind of, now you're going to meet up in one hub world and then you're going to walk over to that place to do that. And that's a, that sort of friction, which kind of the kind of free freewheeling kind of chaotic sort of, we're going to play that and then we're going to play this and we're just going to skip over to there and, oh no, they're over there. No, we'll just have to, you know, just close that down and just, just click on this link. That is really important to Roblox culture. And I think um, not doing something similar, like that instant access thing, I think is uh, is a danger. On the other hand, the fidelity thing. So I, I agree with you, but... Um, so obviously in, in Fortnite already, people are make, you're able to make stuff. And Fortnite is already a place where people make stuff just to hang out with them um, and just to muck around and put a bunch of stuff in a space and just mess around. Um, and that has Fortnite fidelity as well. Um, 
And if core can capture that, then people are already doing that. Um, so, I mean, I, I, I mean, I, I agree that I think it, it kind of prompts people to make things that are sort of, you know, already in the market, you know, sort of, you know, here's my halo and here's my war, war game thing. What's it? What's the Call of Duty thing that, you know, Warzone, Warzone. Um, and I, yeah, I think that it would prompt people to do that, but I think that it also offers people the chance to mess around and that, um, those people are already messing around with the same kind of looking tools elsewhere. So it actually might be an easy transition for them. Um, having a look around now, just as you were talking, uh, there is a browser interface from which you can launch games. I would be curious how quickly you can launch them because that's the the other advantage yeah. of Roblox, yeah, Roblox is that the download sizes are yeah. tiny. Yeah, 10 seconds and you're playing usually. Yeah, which is presumably not the case if you've made something that looks a lot prettier with its own asset set in core. Yeah, yeah. But maybe these are the problems that just get solved as internet connections become yeah. faster and that yeah. sort of stuff. And maybe the fact that you've loaded into PlayStation Home means that all, a lot of the fundamental, you know, the, the most important core stuff is all loaded in memory already and skipping off into a game is going to be easier. Who knows? Who knows? Just for clarity, it doesn't actually run off PlayStation Home, right? <laughs> <laughs> no. No, it's just the, the, the core <laughs> launcher, basically, is the core client you install. Um but it's, it's, it's got a, then like a 3D world that you can explore that you can then use to access games, game game modes that have been created by the the developers of Core who are called Manticore or by the mm. users. But there is something about Roblox which does kind of, yeah, you have to be inventive. I mean, obviously, there's a huge amount of derivative crap on, on, Facebook, on the Roblox. Almost all of it is derivative crap, but... Uh, it is also a place where all these amazing kind of bizarre ideas have sprung up, often not really extended beyond Roblox, which I've eternally surprised about. But um, but I think also a lot of the fun of Roblox exists in its jankiness, like some a lot of the physics games in it. This is, you know, Roblox physics is not physics, the physics of Fortnite um, and, and Unreal Engine. Um, and that's why those games are fun because they're just stupid and things don't work correctly. And that is a great sense of source of joy. If you smooth all that stuff out and iron it and make it perfect and glossy, I definitely think that that culture, you know, which is not to say its own culture can come forward, but that culture is definitely not going to happen. It's like you might know better than me, but it doesn't feel like Roblox has a sort of default genre. Whereas with core, like a lot of their marketing and the trailers that they've shown are a lot of different first person shooter game modes or third person shooter game modes. And then a lot of what the users are creating seem to be kind of first person shooters or shooty bang things as well. Really? And so I, I, you know, I suppose Unreal Engine is pretty well set up, obviously, given it's named after Unreal. Um, pretty well set up for first person shooters, and I imagine Core gives you like weapon assets and that sort of stuff. Um, Three million different guns. <laughs> <laughs> and so like it's you know it's it, so far at least it seems to be steering people in that direction I mean, you know, roblox's roblox thing is, doesn't 
it's 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 social like roblox is entirely social that's everything to it you know that's um that's why i, th- I think it does have a genre and the genre is role play and you know that's role play either strict because you know people actually play their roles or it's just a world in which you get to do what you like with your friends um you know with sometimes with a game they're in there as well but mostly you're there just to have a laugh with your friends and you can't really do that in first person shooters not in the same way oh just that i just thought there's um there is another bit of unreal news that um uh the uh the metahuman project yeah has just been um uh launched to the wider world in uh, beta which is cool yeah that looks amazing uh i don't have a use for it but the you know the the videos they've shown of, of it being used uh the fidelity level looks looks incredible and, and those things are animated and i hadn't quite appreciated that like as you're editing your your person you're basically you just make humans um it's all being like rigged and rendered in real time like you don't there's not a sort of compile phase where you you then you know have to press a button in order to see it come alive it can just do that immediately because it's already running which is wild yeah it's cool as hell i don't have a use for it either but i just got accepted into the early access nice. i'm just going to use it to create weird looking people <laughs> maximum face <laughs> yeah <laughs> Tom, could you ask John, your artist, to um, to to put a meta face face on your characters, but it would just be an <laughs> Easter egg. No one will know. <laughs> oh God! Like like from a distance, we have the normal stylized art. But if you zoom in too close, it just switches to a fully realistic human face. <laughs> <laughs> Teeth. <laughs> <laughs> That'll be horrendous. <laughs> Oh, I mean, sense. I assume that this is, isn't this whole thing like sort of very Unreal sponsored and Unreal integrated such that you wouldn't be able to just sort of drag and drop this into Unity? Uh, correct. <laughs> you can you can export the models um, and in, into kind of uh, Maya and whatever else um, and mess around with them there. You can, I think, which means that you can export them into Unity, but you'd be breaking all the rules um and but you know and they're entirely free to use within units within um unreal hmm. i would bet that also um this is the kind of stuff unreal is kind of built for like this super high fidelity um yeah. you know triple a kind of uh, stuff and i bet i don't know anything about performance but i would imagine these are pretty demanding even in the best of circumstances and a sort of janky export into unity is not gonna <laughs> perform very well at the fidelity levels yeah, you want for sure in fact that was one of the things because I, I wrote about it um uh, recently for edge and um that was the fidelity thing is the thing that the developers are most concerned about um it like it, it is performance efficient thing? performance yeah sorry yeah performance like uh, it does do level of detail um versions for you just automatically generates them for you but so so far you'll all the images that we've seen of this are highest level of detail um you know close by beautiful shots um which is entirely able to do um with with beautiful strands of hair and all that kind of stuff um certainly certainly when they first revealed it and um the level of detail stuff which at, at further distances the hair suddenly transformed model and that transition was apparently not too good um <laughs> that, that a lot of the lot of g delta stuff was definitely something that could be improved 
Yeah, they actually they did show it in a video I saw. I think it might might have been like a launch trailer or something. They did show the level of detail stuff where they just like um and in a very brave way really because like the the flattering way to show the level of detail thing is actually move the camera further away and and you know reduce the the detail as it does so at the sort of distances you normally would but of course that doesn't really show it because if you're doing a job well you can't tell that's even happening yeah. uh so instead they stay full close up and let the guy yeah. go into like you know back to ps3 graphics back to ps2 <laughs> graphics back to ps1 <laughs> graphics you watch his face devolve into angular ridges I really loved that actually. I thought it was really cute. <laughs> like these, yeah. you know, you can use this for creating characters for like crowd scenes and stuff like that in the background. And yeah, that looked cool. I want someone yes. to use this to make a game that's entirely like that. Like it goes to all the trouble of making the perfect, meticulously detailed, photorealistic <laughs> face, and then exports them all at lowest LOD and never increases it. <laughs> <laughs> or at distance, they look amazing, and you get closer and closer, and it's like, oh, oh, oh dear, oh god, oh no. <laughs> I wonder if you could do one where like the, you invert the LOD logic. So at distance, they're incredibly well rendered, but as you get closer, they get more and more angular and blocky. <laughs> it's a sort of like weird psych. <laughs> Imagine this sort of thing's going to be a really amazing resource for artists generally, like storyboarders, yeah. like concept artists, previs people for movies. Like that, that, I almost see it being more useful for that in some ways than like, I mean, I guess if you're making a game on Unreal, why not? But bought a human directly from this, but you know, I can imagine that just being an incredible tool to have access to um, Definitely. for reference as much as anything else. I think extras are going to be really quite nervous about it as well. Right. Yeah. 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 Just people hanging around film sets with like, you know, green screen balaclavas on waiting for their faces to be <laughs> replaced by a lod mesh from, yeah. <laughs> from the cloud. Well, well, actually... While on the topic, um, let's also mention that uh, there's this Witcher mod where somebody has used an AI to basically generate Geralt lines based on the voice acting from the game. You know, it can be trained on the voice acting from the game and then generate a, you know, the voice actor's performance, I forget his name, uh, of some new lines that they need for their mod. Um, and of course, this is raising questions about like... Uh, it's making actors nervous. Um, I, ha I have to imagine, I, mean, I don't know what the law is currently, but I have to imagine that any sensible law around this would say that you are using their likeness and you need permission to do that. Yeah, you'd think. And if yeah. you have their permission, then it's, I think it's a non-issue. Like if an actor gives you permission to use that stuff, obviously an actor would be well advised to be very careful about what contract they sign there and, and limit the use of it. But, um, you know, an example that, that came up in an article about this was like, you record all your dialogue and then something changes in the game and you're like, shit, we actually, we need to change this line or we need some little thing here, just a very small incidental, you know, instead of reloading, it's <laughs> rearming or something like that, where you don't really need the, their A game and you have all their all their voice lines, you, you're you working with them, you have a good relationship with them, they give you permission to, to generate this stuff. You could fill in those gaps just with a click of a button rather than having to schedule a whole other studio session. Because right. I think a, a lot of games, especially on the lower end uh, budgets, um, are using uh, actors who are recording from their home studios and everything. And that that's obviously um, less of a ordeal. But if you're doing in-person, like multi-character scenes where everyone's got to come into the studio at the same time, that is a scheduling nightmare, I hear. And um, the ability to, to fill in those gaps seems good, but obviously uh, situations where you're sort of not hiring actors in the first place because you can steal the performance from some other <laughs> existing thing uh, is A, probably not going to work quality-wise for, um, for a lot of contexts, and B, 
definitely seems like it shouldn't be legal. <laughs> I, I I think there was with Back to the Future Two, there was a court case about this, which is where a lot of laws around likeness rights and stuff were first written because Back to the Future 2 they go back in time to the same time period as the first film and so they needed the actors back but they didn't want to pay Crispin Glover the fee that he Mm. wanted and so what they did was they used a bunch of footage including cut and unused footage from the first film and then they used a lookalike for a bunch of scenes (laughs) Um, and just kind of pretended that he was still in the film, and so he sued the the film company and said that they, you know, they were using his likeness to market the film by pretending that he was in it, basically when he wasn't, and he won, right. and so that you know that set a lot of precedent around this stuff. Hmm. <laughs> the thing I was going to say is, it feels like the thing actors need to protect because when you talk about like not needing to call actors back in for like another day in the studio to reshoot things. That's basically like not having to pay actors for another day of work yeah. as well. Like that is actually part of the process, right? Like reshoots are part of the process. Um, it's an expected, you know, part of the way the industry functions. And so almost the thing that needs to be reflected in how this is sort of, I guess, what actors charge for is almost like the performative intent. Because I was thinking about this, that like if you go and make a Skyrim mod where you pull together all of your the stuff you need out of you know, the very generic lines of dialogue that are in the game. I imagine this, you could do this in The Witcher 2 to an extent. Um, you know, you just you just use sufficiently generic lines about what's that and go over there and get me this thing <laughs> um, to pull together something a little bit rough and ready. I don't think anyone, this would that wouldn't raise the same alarm bells, even though it's functionally the same thing, you know, mm. rendering some new content out of existing yeah. recorded material. The difference in that case is the recorded material that's being used is being literally, it's repurposed performance that is being recreated as it as it was and and that is i think distinct from some sort of you know process by which you break out the individual sounds the actor made and or individual words or even like individual syllables and reconstruct a realistic performance out of them because that is effectively new work that has been generated out of already paid for labor and at that point it's sort of i think that's where it gets really tricky yeah. Um, it's a bit like deepfakes, for example, or, or any other kind of way of of amending a performance after the fact. I, I mean, I don't know if it needs to be like the law needs to move against it, but I suspect that whatever protections are in place for actors currently need to adjust to account for this probably pretty swiftly because it's only going to become more of a thing. I wonder if it's going to be, I mean, this is such a clear cut case where it's it's a trained on one voice, not just one voice actor, but one one performance and it's for a mod that is for that game where it is that character saying those words. It couldn't be clearer that this is the imitation uh, that is meant to be read as as that person. But I wonder how, if the technology already supports or if it soon will support, you know, train it on two different performances and combine them. And the AI version, if it can come up with a voice that sounds human that is, that is generated from those two different performances or, or more than two, then you, now you've got something which doesn't entirely belong to either of the <laughs> original people. Right. I wonder if how, how you make laws that, that make yeah. that work i don't know yeah you just shout stop it and then <laughs> <laughs> i just don't no no one. put it down <laughs> <laughs> you make me feel bad i just thought you spray the infringers with a water bottle to dissuade them <laughs> yeah you just go to spritz them you just go to spritz them until they, they settle down you do that to an ai shorts out <laughs> <laughs> 
there you go. You've won. Well, yeah, we sold that legal quagmire. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Done. Just spritz it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Should we talk about what we've been playing? Yeah. I've got one that's connected actually a little bit. Somewhat yeah, go connected. on. Go on, segue us, Alex. I'll be quick because it's a game that we've talked long about. But I've been um, I've been replaying um, Disco Disco Elysium. Mm. Oh, nice. The new voices mm. and. I've been having a ball. Um, How are the voices? Just, they are. I'm. I'm really enjoying them. Um, but like, I'm really interested in the effect they have. Like, I'm, I was initially sort of, you know, you we, we've played. We, I think we, all four of us have played it. I think. Yeah. Yeah. I have. So you know, you we all have a strong relationship with the game already, and we've all re- all built up our own kind of internal. Di- you know, internal models of what they that, that world sounds an, like. An inland empire like. of, of some kind. Yeah, <laughs> maybe one of those. That might, yeah. <laughs> and um, and so it was definitely a bit of a shock to start with when you're hearing voices, you know, defined voices for people you, you've got, which is always going to differ from the one in your head. Um, but it, but by and large, like it's it's been really good. And the thing that I've, I've really found about it is that um. I've been reading it and listening to it better than I've read it the first time round. Mm. You know, I was, I'm, I'm a real, I'm not particularly good at reading video game text. I tend to skip over it, skip over it, skip over it, read too quickly, you know, anxious to get to the next thing, sort of speed things along. Um, the, I'm finding the dialogue is, is slowing me down and I'm even not really reading the text ahead of the dialogue. So I'm actually listening to full passages. Um, and weirdly, you know, I think the performances are good. They're not amazing. Like, you know, some of them are really good. Quite a few of them are not that great to me. Um, but I am listening to all of them and I'm getting more of the story and I'm I'm actually getting more... Uh, of a sense of of the of the detail that the game is continually throwing at you and and um and that's actually been quite transformational like i I feel I know the game better this time around and I'm following it in more detail and that's been that's been great so the very you know even if some of the performances aren't amazing, the fact that um they're pinning me to 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 take the story. Uh, in more detail that's been great um i really really like the performance of um the main reader which i think kind of i think he's recorded uh, three or four hundred thousand lines which is just what inconceivable so so uh it's an actor called lenville brown um and he plays Almost all of the emotions and you know internal monologues, almost all of that, and narration. So any description of what's around you, which isn't obviously voiced or expressed or or represented by another character, who he's doing, and all of the emotions or you know all of, what are they called, you know, personas, whatever they are. Um, uh, and he doesn't do different voices for any of it. It, 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 I thought it was really surprising as well. Like in that first section where you're waking up right at the start of the game, um, he's reading out different personas, uh, uh, all with the same basic voice and ba- same basic inflection. And I was surprised. Like, oh, these these don't sound distinct from each other. And it's a very he, the the style that he's done have used is very. Um, 
methodical, I'd say. Every syllable is pronounced. It's it's reasonably slow. It's measured, um, and he goes through it. And it's you know it's it's very well read. But they're all the same like that. Your lizard brain has a very distinctive voice, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. That's so like they kept that voice. one. It's very different. Yeah, that was established by the, the by the original intro, which which was semi at the very start was voiced, and that's still there. Um, so there's a lizard one. I think that's all voiced by um, Mikey, Mikey W. Goodman. Good. Yeah, who's the yeah. lead singer of a band called Sixth. Yeah, yeah, and, and Lenville point. Brown is the lead singer of a ska band called Maroon Town, <laughs> <laughs> who've been going around. I, I listened to a bunch of their stuff. They've been going since the eighties, like this sort of amazing kind of ska band, sort of London, mm. London guy. But yeah, so he, so he sort of fills in after the intro ends, you know, that you're aware of from playing it the first time round, uh, and like, and I think somehow it really works for me. Um, it, it, there's something calm about it, the way he voices it, uh, something very, that methodical sort of rhythm that he has as well. It's so good. and But there is emotion there as well. And, you know, whether it's sort of sort of despairing or or kind of violent or it's, it is there, but it's really under, downplayed, not underplayed. It's just, a, I think it's just right. But It's a bit of a shame because I, I would love to hear like what, perception sounds like and what stealth sounds like and some of these like more technical yeah. ones of just like yeah okay do that like what's that voice <laughs> i think what he does is allow is, is allow you to read it in your own way still because he's not hmm. dictating it which is probably a real strength and it gives a consistency as well i mean don't forget there are i'm trying to think i mean is it 20 different personas or something you know if you've got 20 different voices on top of all of the characters that might be over over you know far too much to deal with as a player anyway um for me it definitely works like um and there are you know your rep your limbic system and your reptilian brain they they're still madly voiced by mikey goodman I, I would want to pull out a couple of other the, the uh, readers as well. We really like um, Joyce Messier's um, um, voice, which is by Tegan Hitchens. That's a really kind of just a, a posh older woman. Really good. Really, that's a good one. Measure Head, who's um, voiced by someone called Dizzy Dross. That's really good. Um, Kuno. Kuno was voiced in the original, wasn't it? Yeah. Yes. yeah, very notably, <laughs> it yeah. was a mm. it was a rough as as hell performance, but but really kind of fitted the character. And I saw a lot of people in our Discord um, were very not happy with the new Kuno. They found him much too sort of much too of a much of a performance. I think too sort of refined versus the, yeah, the very raw original. Yeah, I it's work. Kuno's working for me, and uh, Kuno S is working for me as well. But they're definitely. Yeah, I can. I can. I did. Yeah, I did vaguely remember that. Yeah, like I, that's all I wanted to say. Really, it's just been really nice just to go through it with such um, and actually slow down and kind of listen to it all. I was worried actually because um, t- time in the game uh, progresses as you're going through the dialogue, and that's like as evidently a, a choice on the on like, developers. Mm. Um, uh, and it means that time <laughs> and spending a lot more time in in game time, kind of just chatting to people. It seems to be working all right. I'm kind of doing things that I should be on day three, so it's all right. But I don't know. It, it must. What have been kind of character issues. are you going for this time? Uh, uh, em- empathetic. I'm um, being mm-hmm. in just very uh, 
sort of sensitive, empathetic, and um, uh, sort of quick to apologize. <laughs> so I got sorry mm. cop very quickly. <laughs> <laughs> what have you been playing, Tom? I've been playing a couple of things. Um, one of which is Boomerang X, which is... I was really hoping this would happen in the IGF that, that that something really great would come out of nowhere. And this doesn't this is doesn't exactly come out of total obscurity. It's being published by Devolver, so it's possible. Uh, some of you have heard of it, but I had never heard of it, and it's immediately brilliant. <laughs> it's a first-person action game in the in the vein of Devil Daggers, I would say. That's one of the closest points of comparison, in that it's about arenas and enemies that are going to teleport in, and it's just all about with how much finesse you can take them out. But it's less pure than Devil Daggers in the sense that it's not just one arena that's like a flat space. It's um, you are traveling through a world and every now and then you stop and it becomes an arena and you, you fight people off. But uh, you have a boomerang, as you might imagine. Um, and that's kind of the core of, of all of the um, uh, mechanics that stem from there. And it becomes a mobility tool because one of the first things you you... Uh, learn to do is um, after you've thrown your boomerang there's a button you can press to basically teleport to it and not only do you arrive at its location but you also inherit its velocity so ever fast it's traveling now mm. you're traveling that fast in that direction so mm. going from zero to 60 is just instant and incredibly easy um, and then you're sailing through the air so the whole thing is like aerial acrobatics and while you're in the air you can then aim another boomerang throw and um, I will say it takes a bit of conf configuration to get it, the controls set up the way that it makes sense to me, at least. Um, but there is a basically a slow-mo button, uh, which you can only use while you're charging a throw. And so it makes sense to me that it should just always go, be in slow-mo when you're charging a throw. And there's an option for that. You can turn that on. So basically, once you have that set up, now as you're arcing through the air, you aim a new boomerang throw. You sort of hold it down to charge the throw. And while you're doing that, you're going in super slow motion. So now you can do things like vault over somebody and in slow motion, aim a precision throw at their back to hit like a weak spot that's only on their back. And there's a specific kind of enemy that that's the only way to, de to destroy them. Um, and that just feels fucking great. And I, I don't think I've ever played something where I've gone from, you know, fumbling with the controls and, and trying to figure out what the hell this game is to... Um, sailing through the air doing incredible slow motion kills in such a short space of time you learn it like so fast um and the level of finesse and the spectacular things you're doing um uh that early on is just so cool and yeah the, all of the enemies are kind of designed to to push you to engage with this movement mechanic so like i say there's a there's a big kind of enemy that like a big sort of stone golem kind of thing that, that has a weak spot only on its back and that you can only harm it by hitting it there. You only have to hit it once. So one good shot takes it out, which is really satisfying. And all the time you're not taking it out, it is generating other enemies. It's creating these little like flying squid things that are just going to very slowly kind of track you and, and individually that they're, they're no problem. But um, uh, if you don't pay attention, you can get overwhelmed. And then your boomerang goes through anything it kills. So, and there's a lot of basic enemies that just take one hit. They have you don't need to worry about weak spots. You can just kill them with any any throw. But there's a lot of them, and it's all about. It's really um, because you're being so acrobatic that these guys are a problem. Because if you're just on the ground and walking around, it's very easy to keep track of where they all are. And if you just keep moving, you're faster than them. So they'll always be, you know, in the same direction. But once you're launching yourself into the air to get this like slow motion back shot on this other guy, 
when you land, you're suddenly like, shit, where am I? Where are all the spiders? Where are all the squids? Where is this? How did I leave this arena? And what state is it? And uh, which directions do I need to worry about? It does a nice thing where if something's creeping up behind you, you get a kind of black shadow in your vision on the edge of your vision telling you which direction to turn to see what's about to hit you. Because if something does hit you, um, initially it's an instant kill. Then slowly over the course of the game, you get like one extra hit point or two extra hit points. But yeah, not you're never going to have 100 health. It's... it's um, it's very small numbers. And it's got a bunch of other like, cool finesse things. Like if you kill two things with the boomerang with the same throw, like kill something on the way out, on the way back, or, or just line them up so you get a lot of kills with one throw, that charges up a kind of shotgun ability where now you can just hit this button to blast a huge kind of shower of, of shrapnel that's going to shred everything in front of you, uh, which obviously also reminds me of Devil, Devil Daggers. And later on, the I'm not that far into it, but... Um, uh, I've had an arena where in addition to those stone guys with a weak spot on the back, there's a massive frog with a weak spot on the top of it and on the bottom of it. So to get the top one, you obviously need to launch yourself in the air and from directly above it, throw a boomerang down. Um, your boomerang is your only weapon. You, that's the only way you can deal damage except for that shotgun thing, I guess. Um, and so you have to use your boomerang to both launch yourself into the air, then, then get it back and throw it down while you're still in midair then you need to land back on the ground and wait for it to jump so that you can get underneath it and throw a boomerang up into its belly to get its other weak spot and take it out that way. Then there's like a massive fucking giraffe, <laughs> like a giraffe that sort of like <laughs> takes up. It's actually, it's the closest point of comparison is the um, tall striders from Horizon Zero Dawn. You know, those ones you have to climb mm-hmm. to fill out the map, like the absolutely vast things that um, uh, its weak spots are sort of on the, the joints of its legs, like at the very top. And I think there's one on its head as well. But all of the time that it's out there, it it can cast this weird like storm cloud thing that sends from the sky and is basically a danger zone. Like if you, at that point, it's less like a height limit. If you go that high and you hit that danger zone, you're going to lose health. Um, and so it puts a kind of dampener on your acrobatic abilities. Like, yes, do the acrobatic cool shit, but wait for your moment. Don't do it all the time. You need to think about when to when to strike. And yeah, they all all the enemies feel really like, designed from the ground up for this movement mechanic and and to make push you to do amazing things and to think about how you're playing and yeah it's just so satisfying i i never really clicked with devil daggers because it was too stripped down for me i think a as far as i know you can't win right you're just trying to survive for as long as possible and it's, it's time attack basically yeah yeah so this is a series of arenas and you you win them you're you're given a goal and and you complete it and the enemy stops spawning at that point and then you move on you explore a bit more and you get a new ability and it's got that that's a loop that really works for me um and and actually i just because i was trying to find out how much of this game is public to make sure i was okay to talk about it um uh i looked at their website and realized there's actually a load of abilities i don't have yet which is cool um and by the way, it is public. There's a demo on Steam that you can get. Uh, I don't know how much of the game it is, but I imagine it will get you to the to the cool acrobatic stuff I'm talking about. Um, yeah, it's it's a lot more of a game than in the traditional sense than Devil Daggers is. It's, whereas Devil Daggers feels almost like a sport, where it's just like get good at this one thing, and that's the entire game. Um, and for me, that wasn't a, a great fit. I kind of I like to progress and I like to feel I have achieved something and I like to unlock new abilities and also I want to be doing incredible shit. Like I don't want to just I don't want my performance just to only be good if I'm incredibly skillful. I would like to look amazing even if I'm not that great at it. <laughs> this is kind of a lot more expressive than um, Devil Daggers. Yeah. Um 
yeah, and just just more just like big scale, huge leaps, huge arenas, um, lots of lots of verticality. It's it's kind of the most vertical action game that I've played, and usually that's a buzzword that gets real tiresome because the like just making a level really tall doesn't really help anybody, and it just makes it annoying to have to keep looking up and down. But in this, because you have such an easy way of of gaining massive velocity and and arcing through these spaces, that actually works a treat. That sounds really red. Was it you, Chris, that that was playing? There was a demo in one of the recent Steam demo kind of festivals. There was a game. Oh, do you know what I mean? Thingy Night. Tom will know what this is because it's Shady Night. Uh, Shady, Shady Night. That's Nights. the one. Thingy Night. You know. Thingy Night. Thingy night. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, that, that was fun. I played that also. Yeah, it's um, it's like that, but uh, Shady Knight uh, was very um, uh, like small, smaller scale action and and less uh, sort of huge leaping around. And I felt it was more demanding in terms of precision and and having to hit all the right buttons at the right times to do the cool thing. And Boomerang X, I think, does a good job of of um, without too much complication getting you to do really spectacular things without having to learn a lot of different buttons. Mm-hmm. Mm. There was a weird thing in Shady Knight, wasn't there, where like grabbing grabbing weapons and vaulting towards weapons were like the same thing. And so you sometimes kind of needed to you needed to need a weapon just to kind of get yourself across the arena. I, I don't know if you needed one just to traverse, but grabbing a weapon could be a form of traversal. Like mm. a weapon in the air or something you could teleport to. I played the Shady Night demo as well, and it felt very stop-start to me. Like I felt like either I would die in the little scenario and be at the checkpoint and doing it again and again, or I would do it well, but I would feel like I'd done it in a really clumsy way, and so I would mm. want to restart in order to mm. try and do it as smoothly as it seemed possible, which sort of, in both instances just frustrated me like even when i was restarting of my own accord uh i didn't necessarily enjoy that it sounds like boomerang x is more expensive in a way that you can get into a flow state with it more easily yeah i will say there is the one moment of frustration boomerang x is it's each arena is is many waves sometimes like eight waves or something and if you clear seven waves and then you die on the eighth you've got to start the entire thing from from the start you don't get to save between waves and that is, yeah, it's a big, it's a big fuck you from me <laughs> when that happens. <laughs> it's, uh, I, I quit basically every time that does happen. I, I was very annoyed about that at first. And then uh, what I sort of found myself saying to myself was, well, if you're going to do that, then I'm going to stop playing every time that happens. And I thought, maybe that's a good thing. Maybe I should stop playing when that happens. <laughs> what have you been playing, Graham? I've been playing the exact opposite game. <laughs> it sounds like I've been playing... Transport Tycoon? <laughs> Paradise Lost. Ah, okay. Uh, um, which is like a first-person narrative game um, about an alternate history in which World War Two didn't end in the 1940s. It continued into the 1960s until the Nazis had developed nuclear weapons, um, much like the John Milton ep- epic poem. Wolfenstein. Um, mm, Paradise Lost. Oh. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and so, but, uh, it's set inside a Nazi bunker, basically, and quite early on, 
you know, it's 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 a game about walking around empty spaces, picking up notes, and piecing together a narrative that happened long before you arrived. Quite early on, it spells out the past uh, quite directly, as you basically find like a letter that someone has typed up with what the Nazi plan is, and it's got like six points on there, where it's like point number one. Uh, launch nuclear weapons at everywhere. Point number two: <laughs> um, use me- like superior members of society in secret bunker uh, and get them to start breeding. Start a breeding program. Step two: train the children to be superior super soldiers. Step four: reemerge on the surface and use the super soldiers to defeat our enemies. And I feel like <laughs> I feel like if you've got if point one on your plan is launch nuclear weapons in all directions, but that doesn't win you the war. <laughs> like the, the, the way you're going to win the war is through a breeding program through which you're going to develop super soldiers and they're going to what, be what wins you the war. What? <laughs> but I also just love the idea that someone's written this down as like just a numbered list. It's like, wiki. <laughs> it's like the wiki how yeah, for... don't forget <laughs> <laughs> note to self <laughs> and um it's yeah so it's you're you're descending uh, you're a child so there, let's start there there's lots there, there's lots of layers to this so you're a 12 year old you're a 12 year old child the bunker is somewhere in poland and Poland has been destroyed by nuclear war, but it's been long enough that the surface is traversable, um, if not yet inhabitable. And you you find this bunker and you're descending into it and you're discovering A, why it was built, B, what happened to the, the Nazis who were there, and then what happened to the people who found it after the Nazis and then you know, what they did and what happened to them. And, you know, and, and, and there is one person that you're talking to over a radio and everything else is either very short flashback cutscenes involving your character's mother or it's notes and audio tapes and that sort of stuff, audio diaries. Um, so it's one of those. And it's a game in which you walk very slowly. There's no run button. There's no jump button. There's nothing like that. There's not even any environment puzzles. You're literally, you just you walk through these spaces. And the spaces are the thing that it's got going for it. So like this is an underground bunker, but it's absolutely enormous. It's huge cavernous spaces in which they've put like man-made lakes and an artificial lighting so that they can grow crops and build absurd Nazi architecture and edifices to their to their greatness, I suppose. And so like you're you're exploring these kind of very decadent buildings and housing facilities but it's all underground in these enormous caves and there's big statues and it has this sort of bioshocky feel uh, throughout the whole thing um and like i enjoyed exploring those spaces i less enjoyed any of the narrative elements of it um like i say there's the kind of layers of like you're finding out about the Nazi history, you're finding out about the, the Polish people that followed on from them. And that's audio diaries, which you can't pick up, you just hit play and then you have to stand next to them in the room in order to listen to them. Or it's sometimes it's these sort of um, computer 
tubes that you <laughs> I can't remember <laughs> what the game calls them, but they're tube a series of tubes, <laughs> tube shaped objects that you pick up, cylinders that you then slot into a computer, and you'll get again an audio recording, but also these um, sort of like top-down computer maps of different scenes that are playing out and these are quite effective actually like there is something about scenes of violence and fighting played out via little dots on a computer screen um with just little snippets of audio on top that feels very cold and detached in uh, in a way that i found quite affecting unfortunately the writing is not great and the dialogue is inconsistent and it just gets increasingly absurd essentially um in it in that it descends in quite quickly into science fiction i mean more science fiction than just you know alternate history world war ii and that the nazis apparently invented an ai computer that you could insert into people's brains in order to make them smarter and unlock the, the power of the brain um <laughs> and then like are specifically breeding people possibly for this purpose and uh, plugging them into computers and stuff like that. Um, it's not really a spoiler. These are things you find out very early in the game. Um, but I, I, I'm beginning to feel as if I'm just, first of all, I'm just over this as a, in general, as a storytelling <laughs> technique, <laughs> like the, the, the listening to tapes and the reading to notes genre of game like i uh, we talked about this marsh and i last week where i'm completely okay with games that have no puzzles or no action or no like overt gameplay mechanics and and games which are just linear stories i'm okay with that as well but there it's extremely difficult i think to tell a meaningful story that happened long before you arrived where you're finding out everything in retrospect it's difficult to connect to characters that you know from the off are dead and you can have no real-time conversations with them you're just listening to them on audio tapes um and what what it does for me is that it tends to make these stories more about underlying ideas and themes maybe rather than about the actual tension or drama or character drama of you know the, the narrative that you're being told and that's a problem here when the underlying and ideas and themes i feel like are quite stupid or <laughs> <laughs> unconsidered maybe like it feels like maybe this is a game constructed based on a series of what if statements like like, wouldn't it be interesting if the Nazis didn't lose the war and it continued into the 60s? Wouldn't it be interesting if you stumbled across a bunker and descended into it and it was this massive complex that you could explore? Wouldn't it be interesting if there was these like sci-fi devices that you were then discovering as you moved through it, that sort of stuff? But when you piece it together and try and work out, well, what is this actually saying? What is this communicating about the Nazis or about the Polish people that came afterwards or about the kind of there's like themes of um, par paranoia and superstition and all this sort of stuff, but none of it really hangs together into like a coherent, hey, this is what this game is about, or hey, this is what this game is saying about those themes. And without you know going into spoilers, it's difficult to talk about, but that's quite a, 
bad problem to have <laughs> when the Nazis are central to your, like if you're going to explore some of those ideas, there's certain certain things that you want to state maybe more clearly than this game does. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm I'm being very ambiguous there because I don't I don't want to spoil it for people, even though I wouldn't recommend necessarily that you go play this. Um, <laughs> how did you uh, feel about uh, how did you feel about the Outer Wilds in terms of like learning about characters who lived a long time ago and coming to care about them? So I haven't. I haven't played the Outer Wilds past ah. the first like twenty minutes or so. So, um, I like it when it's done well. Like, and technically, like, there's only twenty minutes, so <laughs> 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 that's true. Um, the, uh, the Outer Wilds, like it, I've listened to you guys talk about it in previous episodes of the podcast and stuff like that, and it seems like there is a central mystery, and that the planets that you're visiting each have a really strong and interesting sci-fi concept that mm. makes them visually interesting and distinct and then also you're trying to work out well, why is it this way or why does it work this way that sounds like really compelling stuff from a kind of the narrative is, is a puzzle um, so I, I, I haven't played enough of it to know what it's like in terms of character drama um, but yeah, it sounds like it's got other things going for it yeah, I don't. Dis- yeah, I don't disagree that like I think it's a it's a it's it can be a tough thing to have certain kinds of character drama in this format. I would also point to Edith Finch as a game that I think pulls that off. I mean, the obvious one is Gone Home, but as the kind of you know originator of this way of telling a story, um, and then Firewatch sits somewhere in the middle of this pattern, I guess. Um, but did you play Edith Finch, Graham? Because I'd be interested to see how you felt about that relative to this way of telling a story. So I did play Edith Finch and I loved Edith Finch. I think that's great. Like I think Edith Finch does. A you actually really play f- as those characters, basically, don't you? Yeah. It's not just hearing about them. You go, you true. go back and be them. That's true. yeah. That's the thing. And like Edith Finch, each vignette is sh- like what you're doing is shaped around the narrative. So it's the the mechanics are a, a metaphor for the story that it's telling you. It's so mm. like it, it's it goes so much further than any of these games in bringing that story to life and making mm. those characters feel real and alive <laughs> until they're not. Um, whereas <laughs> these other games where the characters are just you know they're they're literally all dead pretty much in Paradise Lost, and you're just reading their fucking typed letters and listening to their recorded conversations um i find that much more difficult to get invested in gone home worked for me like and i think partly that's because there was a central mystery element of like well these these people are alive i just don't know where they are (laughs) or at least i think (laughs) they're alive and then um there was also like something compelling about the fact that it wasn't 100% clear what genre that game was like mm. the possibility space felt larger yeah. than it actually was and there was a tension in that you weren't sure exactly what genre of story you were reading essentially so you didn't know where it was going to go whereas in Paradise Lost there is a kind of twist to it but I worked out that twist very early on because it's incredibly obvious like so obvious <laughs> that it might not it might not be a twist like it's a thing that the the character you're playing as doesn't know <laughs> or um 
but maybe they wanted the player to know much earlier than the character, the protagonist. I don't know. I'm not sure. Um, but either way, like the, it didn't hang together in that way. Mm. This might be a question that goes nowhere, but um, I was <laughs> noticing recently that uh, a very common format for this kind of story in in like TV and 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 books actually um, is there's one person who is missing or dead uh, right at the start, and their best friend or or someone close to them is then uh, investigating that, but investigating a whole bunch of other stuff. And and as they go along, they they piece together that person's life and learn a lot about them. Like Veronica Mars is this format, and Pretty Little Liars is as well, and. I was just trying to think if there are any games have done that because that just seems like it would fit games pretty well where you have, you're not asking people to care about a whole cast of characters who are long gone, but just pick one person who is close to your character and in, oh, Twin Peaks, of course, is, a, is another huge one where, you know, it's not, the, solving the murder is, is part of it, but um, also in the course of that, you discover all this stuff you didn't know about this character. This character had a whole secret life going on. There's um, the suicide of Rachel Foster which came out, I'm going to say last year. It could have been two years ago, but I think it was last year. And that has, like, you're, you're investigating um, a person's death and you're learning about them and maybe a couple of other characters in the process and trying to piece together what happened in this old building. Uh, but that game had other problems. <laughs> many of which are summarized by its title. Um, <laughs> yeah. I think like Firewatch did this well. And I'm always surprised. I know, I mean, games are hard to make, aren't they? So maybe I'm not surprised, actually. But Firewatch felt like a, a fairly natural next step for the Gone Home formula in just and the way it handled its conversations. And... I mean, it's another cliche that I'm slightly tired of that there is a woman on the end of a radio <laughs> that you're talking mm. to. Mm. And uh, Paradise Lost does have a woman at the, on the end of a radio and you do make some some dialogue choices throughout it. But it, I mean, again, it just can't get past the fact that it's writing and, and its voice acting is not very good. But it also doesn't have nearly the flexibility that Firewatch felt as if it had in your choices, your dialogue choices, your ability to ignore certain lines, your ability to interrupt, that sort of stuff. Um, mm. Like, there are ways in which you can do a really linear narrative with a very narrow level of interactivity and tell a story in retrospect, but still allow some player expression. And I think sometimes, like that's what I need more of, even if it's just like, like I said last week, I take a long drag of your cigarette button or something <laughs> to help invest mm. me in this space. That would make a big difference. And then maybe beyond that, maybe it's just you need a really good writer, <laughs> like if you're gonna build your game entirely on narrative. Yeah, I was wondering. Maybe part of this is that there's there aren't that many writers who who can pull off a story that is told just through a very narrow scope like that. And then mm. the overlap of that and people who can get the funding for good voice acting is probably even narrower. Mm. Yeah, probably. And I I I haven't actually looked this up, but I would. St- 
strongly suspect that this is made by an Eastern European company. Uh, and it's set in Poland, and so that's fine. But all of the voice acting is in English, or at least, you know, maybe you can change the language, but I played it in English. And so there is a challenge there. Of course, if you're a small indie studio with a small budget relying on local voice actors, maybe, because that's what you can afford and that's what's around, but you need them to speak in a, a second language, that's tough. Mm. What have you been playing, Chris? So I have been playing, I'll, I'll get to the game specifically in a minute, but I just realized that the game I've been playing is the opposite of Paradise Lost and is therefore quite similar to the game Tom was playing. <laughs> which was, so just the other way. but yeah so i've had an interesting couple of weeks i guess since i was on the podcast game wise um because my new pc finally arrived i know we don't talk about hardware very much but i have had that experience of having quite a significant upgrade after five years on the same machine a machine that i felt was doing fine i think particularly as, as there aren't necessarily a huge number of games around that, that really require um or make best advantage of very powerful pcs now um, but after, you know, uh, three or four months of waiting for my graphics cards to, uh, noodle its way free of a pile of crypto bot people or whatever, um, I have a new PC, uh, which has allowed me to jump back into a whole bunch of things, um, at the highest kind of fidelity. And, and that's been a really interesting experience. It's been interesting to go back to VR. And so there's a whole bunch of things that I feel like I don't have quite a full takes on yet, but going back to VR, going back to Alec, um, Half-Life Alex, going back to Star Wars Squadrons in quite a big way. And the main one that's taken up quite a lot of my time over the last couple of weeks is going back to Cyberpunk, um, which has had its big first big patch, big patch. Imagine, put your scare quotes wherever you like. It's your podcast. Do what you want. Um, recently, um, but also explicitly playing it on a, on a computer that... Um, I can turn everything up to 100% the ultra blah, 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 and super sample everything, and it doesn't break sweat, um, which reveals an actual video game underneath all of the jank that everyone uh, experienced, including me trying to play it on anything else. Um, I thought maybe I'd be ready to talk about Cyberpunk this episode, but I don't think I am yet because it's a big game and I want to, I think, probably finish it before I return to it. But um, it's been an interesting experience to to play that game in an environment where technical issues aren't a factor, aside from the ones that can't be fixed by technology, basically. Um, but one a game I have been playing that I like to talk about is also a cyberpunk game. Um, uh, is also quite pretty um, and also involves katanas. So there's the segue, which is Ghost Runner, um, which is a little like. Um, was it Boomerang X, you said, Tom? Mm, yeah. uh, similar in that it is a kind of uh, paired-back, movement-focused, uh, first-person action game. Say an action game, because it's not a shooter. Um, where you are a ghost runner, which is a robot ninja, basically a Genji from Overwatch, but in a much more Unreal engine sort of way, um, whom sort of uh, chop people up in a... Uh, very, very detailed and massive, detailed, um, sort of uh, cyberpunk styled uh, jungle gyms, effectively. Um, so I would describe it 
as living somewhere on the the spectrum between Titanfall movement wise in terms of running, jumping, wall running, um, and other mechanics which I'll get into. But also the game that it reminds me the most of is N Plus, which might be a weird comparison given that N Plus <laughs> is a side there's a platform game, you know, a side side on platform game, and this is a first person game and a very kind of hyper detailed one, not a stick person game. Um but it has a similar set of mechanics in terms of, you know, wall jumping, um, but also in the way that uh, encounters are constructed, which I'll talk about in a moment, and also in its kind of lethality. So this is a game where one hit from anything kills you instantly, and one swipe from your katana kills pretty much any enemy instantly. Um, and where, and this is impressive given the you know the fidelity of the engine, where it is sort of instant restart, and therefore it has that fast iteration cycle of an action game which also puts it in the same territory something like hotline miami where you sort of um test and reattempt and and eventually perfect a kind of series of moves that will unpick a combat challenge that will be based around the kind of enemies you're facing where you're facing them and a bunch of other mechanics so you have you know grapple points and walls that are there for wall running you have um whole sort of suite of abilities that interact with these things so in addition to the yeah the running jumping and wall running yeah and the grapple you have a, a dash move which also has a really interesting alternative use that i had never i've never seen before where if you hold the dash button which is normally shift you get some bullet time um, and while you're in bullet time you can use the left and right keys a and d to not move left and right but literally teleport and change your position about five feet either side of where you are just it's a it's a it's not it's not a strafe because you don't move linearly it's a sideways teleport that can only be used while you're dashing and when you're in bullet time and that sounds weird but it's basically this way of flinging all your momentum towards someone waiting till the moment where they're about to shoot you then going into bullet time and just repositioning yourself slightly to the side of where you were so that the rest of your descent or your leap or whatever takes place just slightly off center from what, what you initially input uh, in order to evade the bullet and deal a killing blow or whatever. And it feels really good. Um, you also get like a, like a teleport strike ability, which is, um, which you can do through enemies if you line them up Um and then there are, for example, pickups you can find in the levels that will give you um, sort of full slow-mo for a period of time where you're moving extremely quickly relative to the action on the map. And then there are sorts of mechanics which do really remind me of N+, which, like you'll have enemies that you can't hurt because they're protected by a force field, but those force fields are all visibly linked to a big disco ball, cyberpunk disco ball <laughs> thing that will be somewhere on the level, inevitably usually up in a tangle of wall running points and other kind of platform challenges. And so you must always be moving because you can get shot very easily and some enemies have automatic weapons. And so you're always moving, but you're also planning routes that will take you up and through this thing you need to smash to make the enemies below you vulnerable. So then you can then plan the rest of your route through those enemies to complete the little zone or the level um and it's a really good little set of mechanics and i was thinking about it today when i was playing it um because i think it has even though it's a very very twitchy game um the the mechanics are sort of um the, the rules in addition to all obviously all of the kind of very analog finesse you can try and pull out of any first person action game 
those rules about who you can fight and when and, and how you progress through the environment are pretty um, uh, robust in a way that reminds me more of like almost in some ways like puzzle tactics games or whatever. And I was thinking like th these this, these exact sets of logic could be applied to a, yeah, like a grid-based strategy game in a sense in terms of how do I use my action points most effectively to get through all these enemies without being hit by any of the telegraphed attacks or bullets, which actually reminded me of the kinds of games you like, Tom. So I thought you might actually like it for that reason, apart from the fact that your way of engaging with it is so much more kind of... Um, twitchy and, and kinetic hmm. and so the the campaign it, it has a, a story campaign that i'm maybe a third of the way through now after a couple of hours um which uh is um i'm, I'm really enjoying it it's really fun it looks it looks great the and it is i'm gonna be super nice it is refreshingly old school in its interpretation of how what's up doing a cyberpunk means um in that you play a man who may as well be called jack ghost runner a cool <laughs> cyberpunk samurai who fell very far down a big me mega city and now must fight the way his way back up with the help of his two best friends the an ai architect who may may have built the city originally who speaks in a very deep voice uh, into one ear and the plucky leader of a band of resistance rebels who just wants to um uh who just wants you to do the right thing and help the you know downtrodden denizens of the underhive basically um and it's so incredibly um uninterested in being more complicated than that i think um, it's very, 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 uh, very, very much feels like an action game from about 15 years ago in the way that I found quite comforting, I think, because it reminded me of like being shown a game at Gamescom in the way that it just feels like a video game, like a picture of a video game drawn by anybody. And that's <laughs> somehow satisfying. Um, it has when the, the moment when you're, you're, you're revealed to be called Jack is very funny because it's, there's no reason that you should be this you're like a you're a robot and then the character explains that they call you jack because they found you at the bottom of a like a trash pile and you were really jacked up when they found you oh my and god repaired. and it's like <laughs> <laughs> it's a good job it's like if you'd found me on the on a toilet would i be called <laughs> like um i you know i <laughs> and that's why we call you shit heap <laughs> <laughs> exactly i lost we, when we found you, both of your robot legs had been severed, and that's why you're called a legs. <laughs> <laughs> and like, I love this because they really just wanted you to be good. Because you know, after the opening of the section of the game, you get some update to your firmware that lets you speak again. I was like, oh, what am I going to sound like? And you immediately sound like this. You just sound like a cool video game man. And in a way, it's a determination to reassert that while you are a robot cyborg with no feelings you are also just video game man from video game land i thought it was quite heroic in its own way <laughs> i like the idea i might have misinterpreted but when you said that you're sort of the inciting incident is you just fell a really long way down the cyberpunk city i love that as a very prosaic setup for a game <laughs> like oh i'm just really far down now and i'd rather be higher up please <laughs> unfortunately it's much more law based than that had, oh, um, that's uh, all you, you need got, you got beaten up yeah. by you got beaten up by Dr. Octopus and 
you fell very far and then like 300 years passed or something and then someone oh found you in a bin like there's a big time jump but it's not it doesn't matter because what matters is you go very fast and jump and slide and, and grapple and slice people heads off um yeah i like I, I picked it up it was just on a steam cell which is helpfully now ended and i i think it is a uh, i think it's in the sort of 20 to 30 pound range normally and i think unless you really love this type of game that might be a bit rich but i got it uh, on sale and i am quite enjoying it um is the ip worth five million pounds or five million euros <laughs> which is what it that's what it sold for recently yeah. really yeah yeah 505 bought it for five million pounds five million wow. euros. <laughs> how would you expand it's a bit the of a universe, to me. chris um well so this is going down i find that a little i learned a little interesting because so you know 505 are a mid-sized publisher with some resources and i can understand them wanting to maybe put a flag in the map and, and build some sort of um you know franchises for themselves but this, and this is a great looking game and obviously cyberpunk is is very popular at the moment maybe when that deal was underway that was a, a fairly safe bet based on things this game would sit next to but i all right i'm gonna put it this way in a way i i don't know why i'm being so nice but like i am glad <laughs> i am glad it is not more narratively ambitious because it feels like and i say this it feels like the kind of like modest but technically impressive like output of a mid-sized studio it achieves all the things it sets out to achieve but it's not saying saying out to be everything to everybody by any means um and the narrative side of it is exactly the sort of thing because it's heavily like voice in your ear type um narrative which i will say is well implemented with the fact that you restart all the time it's good at playing you the law once and then not again for example if you replay a section um it's the kind of voice in your ear narrative delivery where you can just sort of like butter a writer on top of it at any <laughs> any point in development, right? Like no one, you know, it's it, typically the sort of thing where a writer would be brought in to kind of explain why you're jumping up some pipes, but the pipes were definitely already there. Um, you know, the stages were definitely built by the time it became time to, to apply a story. And the story they've applied over the top is like capital F, fine. It's not very <laughs> ambitious apart from in its intent to give you caught because it really wants you to be called Jack, but it also really doesn't want to have to explain why that's the case. And then it does anyway. That's the most ambitious thing <laughs> in the story. Everything else is very rote, um, sort of um, very rote cyberpunk slash uh, dystopian sci-fi. Um, you know, if they brought in a writer, they could have maybe layered something of greater meaning on top of that. But I think it would have inevitably become some sort of like discursive, philosophical experience and i'm quite glad it isn't um but that is the nicest thing i can say about it i think in terms of its narrative ambition so i'm not really sure where the ip comes from necessarily um other than maybe its proximity to cyberpunk however i will say one thing that's nice about it that also plays against that is it's it's such it is targeting such a specific audience it's really hard really hard from the beginning and you know they just added a like a challenge map mode where it's basically like, you know, time trials, um, getting through a tough level in, you know, certain, uh, while collecting power-ups and getting time extends for killing enemies and things. And the first one is so hard. I couldn't do it. I had to watch someone do it on YouTube, even though it's like a 20 second run just to, you know, kind of have a sense of how I might do it. 
And that's not the kind of game people tend to make very much. And I kind of like it for that. I, I kind of like that it's so committed to just being a, you know, set of mechanics that you bash your head against until you kind of crack them and then you slip and slide around like a cool, cool ninja. But I don't know if that's necessarily like they're going to be the next big thing, you know, because it's definitely not in a hurry to make you feel like you're good at it because otherwise it wouldn't need an instant restart button. Right. It did. I think this game sold well, right? I think it says here it recouped its 2.5 million euro production costs on launch day <laughs> and mm. sold more than 500,000 copies by the end of 2020. It's just the, th- the thing that made me kind of laugh about the story is just that they bought the IP, which didn't seem like the, <laughs> the, yeah. the part that's important to me. Yeah. I mean, like, I, that, I, I, I find that surprising. I do. Um, but, you know. <laughs> yep, I agree. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I mean, <laughs> really, when you think about it, <laughs> I mean, like, I'm literally trying to think of an explanation for this other than it does look a bit like cyberpunk because it is a cyberpunk genre thing, right? That might be worth a lot. Is it based on anything? I don't know. <laughs> we just don't know. We just don't know. I'm not, I'm not going to do a great job of, um, of, of discourse here necessarily it's a quite a good game i'm enjoying it so far i would buy it for the good movement and combat mechanics not for the story uh and i probably wouldn't buy the ip personally Mm. but good for you if you did (laughs) (laughs) well done 505 (laughs) quite a lot of um studios involved including 3d realms i don't know exactly what 3d realms did Hmm. but um you know cool sorry i mean i don't know if i it's a game where you run and jump and you hit people we've probably covered (laughs) these in the past but it's okay by me tom (laughs) did you have another game we wanted to talk about uh yes i do uh trials of fire the most forgettable name unfortunately uh it doesn't really tell you anything but the game is a roguelike deck builder, which has got me on board already, and uh, mixes that with uh, hex grid-based combat, and you have a party of people rather than just one character. And I feel like I've played takes on that before, especially like this idea that you can have a sort of grid-based battler, and but you're dealt cards, and the cards determine whether you can move. Uh, Fights in tight spaces also is a is a play on that. Um, and I haven't played the final version of, or the, the released version of Fights in Tight Spaces, but um, one issue I remember having with the version I did play was that if you don't get Delta Movement card, you can't move. And that uh, very much limits your options. <laughs> um, and Trials of Fire gets around that with its system is that you can, the, instead of being given like three energy per turn and then spending that on your cards that cost different amounts the way you do in Slay the Spire, the energy is, you start with zero energy and you can only gain it by throwing cards away. So when you discard a card, you get one energy for doing that. Um, and the energy is shared between all three of your characters. So it becomes a question of like, my warrior has just moved into the thick of things. 
they really need to play all their cards. I don't want to sacrifice any of their cards. So my rogue who's hanging back and can take pot shots, instead of taking a pot shot, actually they're going to have to sacrifice their cards to get us some energy so that I can then spend that on my warrior's card so that my warrior can do more this turn. So you can kind of transfer um, your actions between your characters that way. Uh, and it also has a fallback where as if you sacrifice a card for energy, instead of spending that energy, you can also just move them two paces. So you can always move. You're never, if you really need to move, you can just do it because you'll always have cards in your hand and you can always spend them to move. In fact, you can move a long way if you wanted to. I think you get dealt three cards per turn, maybe four in some situations. And so each one of those lets you move two spaces if you sacrifice it. So if potentially you could move the entire length of the map with one character in one turn um, if you're willing to sacrifice all your cards to do it. But that part has to be that character's cards. And the game is full of little like rules like that that kind of, at first it seems very liberal and very, uh, you know, everything can be everything and, and it's all uh, a wash. But then you realize, actually, no, I can't. This character who has these three great, this warrior who's in the thick of things, they've got three great abilities. I want them to use them all. But I also need them to get out of that situation by the end of the turn. And to get out of the situation, they have to spend one of their cards. No one else can do it for them. And so it, it does produce tough situations like that. And the main thing that works about it for me, um, basically, like roguelike deck builders, uh, obviously a, a, a trendy genre uh, ever since Slay the Spire. And I think there haven't been that many of them that have really clicked and taken off. I think designing a deck like that just takes a lot of skill. There's just a whole art form to it that that I don't understand. And um, and the Slay the Spire folks really do on a level that I don't think anybody else does. I think even Monster Train, which I really love, I don't think they, maybe they're not going for it, but they, they haven't nailed what Slay the Spire does with its decks where you just sort of, years later you're still discovering new ways to combine them and you and everything feels like it's there for a reason you sort of once you do that well enough you cross some invisible threshold where the player just sort of trusts that you that you know what you're doing with the cards and that when there's a card they don't see the value of there probably is a reason for that card to exist and i should try and find a way to use it i wouldn't say trials of fire quite hits that height but it definitely for me it immediately sort of marked itself out as one of the good ones like it's one that gets deck building where i with all three of my characters, I have something I'm aiming towards that is really exciting. With the rogue, um, I guess actually they're called a hunter. Um, they have some cards that like, there's one that's just cost two energy and, it, and it's a five damage range attack. And that's pretty expensive, but it's a good amount of damage. Their perk though, is that every character has a different perk and their perk is that the first attack they do every, first range attack they do every turn does maybe two extra damage. Um, and so your big expensive five damage, two energy card, it's not that big a deal on that. It's making it more powerful, but not that much more powerful. But if you have some cheap attacks that you can kind of play every turn, then they'll always get that benefit. So an attack that only does one damage normally now does three. So you've tripled the damage of that card by playing it first. And then there's powers that they can get that will add damage to every attack they do. There's one that just adds two damage to every attack they do forever. Um, and when you, as soon as you've got that in play, every low cost, low damage attack becomes really good because it's just doing a fixed amount of extra damage. So you can just keep dishing that out. And then there's another power that it, that every time you play a card, you do a free ranged attack on a random enemy. 
Uh, and I think it's only one damage at base. But of course, if you have the other one in play where you're doing two extra damage, every time you do anything, you're doing a free attack on somebody and that free attack is boosted by two. And if it's the first attack you're doing, it's boosted by another two and you just become this incredible damage engine. And like, that's just your hunter. You've got two other characters that are all going towards their own synergies and their own you know, uh, logical extremes of, of crazy builds. Um, and so what I find happens in a run the runs are very long, unfortunately. That's the, the downside of it, is it's um, more than an hour to play a run. I find usually two hours. Um, the last time I won, I had four hours on the clock on medium difficulty, uh, but I had kind of been AFK for a bit of that, so I would guess it's about three hours for a successful run on normal difficulty for me. I do spend a lot of time thinking uh, about everything. <laughs> um, and what I find is by the end of a run like that um, is that one of your characters will have will have lucked into one of those synergies will have you know you've 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 picked a good direction for them to go in you've got the cards you need to do it and they've become this amazing damage engine if you won almost certainly one of your characters has done that uh sometimes a second one has done it i've never had a run where all three of them become really come into their own what tends to happen is that at least one of your characters you know what you're going for but it never quite comes together or they just have too big of a deck and that means that the synergies that are in there, you're just not getting the right cards in the same hand at the same time. Um, and that is a really interesting aspect of it because you you have a, like a basic starting deck and then you every time you level up, you can either upgrade a card in there or you can replace it with a new card. So removing and adding is kind of the same thing. Um, but then the way your deck gets bigger is when you equip weapons and armor. So every piece of armor or, or every weapon has its own cards associated with it and when you equip it those cards go in your deck when you unequip it they go out again so you can kind of choose whether you want that stuff in your deck or not and it tends to be that uh it, it's kind of interesting actually because the most the rarest items that are the most powerful um add three cards to your deck and that's a lot. And usually at least one of them is not really what you want. You kind of want like one of them. Maybe you want two of them. It's rare to get all three cards actually be really good and good for your build. And so you have this strange like conflicting like impulse where you, you want to equip it because it has some great stuff, but actually it contains some not great cards. And they kind of counteract that by uh, if a piece of gear is really good, if its quality level is high, that gives you more redraws. So when you're dealt the cards you don't want, you can put them back and, and redraw again. And how many times you can do that is just based on the quality of your gear. So basically, if gear is good quality, it doesn't matter too much if it gives you a bad card because you can redraw that in theory. Uh, but then there's also a mechanic about like when you rest, you can, if you have the right resource, you can hone one of your items, which means removing one of the cards that it gives you permanently so that now that card you don't want isn't in your deck and you just have a really efficient one. And yeah, it's it's very... I feel like I'm having to learn all over again the thing I learned with Slay the Spire, where early on in Slay the Spire, you just take every card you're offered. You're just like, sure, I'll, oh, that sounds good. I want that. That does damage. I'll, sounds like a, a net win. And as you get better at Slay the Spire, you realize, oh, actually, like I have to think really carefully about what I add because it dilutes everything else I already have. So if I have good cards, I, I've got to have a much higher bar for what I add to my deck. And here, the whole logic for all of that is very different in that... It's less about individual quality of cards and more about cards that work well together. And you have to like you can have a cool item that that means you're gonna it gives you a free move and the move gains you energy rather than costing anything. Um, and it sounds great on paper, 
But the thing I had with my last run was that my assassin just never came together because the only like scaling mechanic that I had that I was focusing on for them was that they were going to get damage bonuses by going into stealth and by various other synergies with other characters. And then I had a power that would double the damage bonuses. And then I had some attacks that would hit twice. So they'd get, they'd benefit twice from the damage bonuses and a special critical strike that would benefit, you know, six times from damage bonuses, which all sounds great. But if you don't get the damage bonus in the first place, nothing ever happens. <laughs> that character just never gets off the ground. Like it's all, I'm really susceptible to this, this temptation of like, oh, if I had this online and that online and that online, these powers that you actually have to spend energy to play, uh, then I would be incredibly powerful. So I'll take this stuff and I underestimate how hard it actually is to get all that stuff. You know, like get dealt it, then spend the energy to play it and then spend the energy to play the other thing and get dealt that as well. And then have it all active at the same time. By the time that's happened, usually the fight is over <laughs> one way or the other. Um, but yeah, it's, it just it just has that that hold on me that, that a good roguelike gets where you get, um, you glimpse the possibilities, you can see you know about some brilliant builds that you've done before and you, you're excited to do again, but you also kind of have the sense like, I bet there's a load of other builds here that I haven't figured out yet. And especially with three characters, there's ways to combine these that um, go beyond the the normal deck building thrill. Like the rogue has this very strange quirk where powers, that has powers and powers are similar to how they work in Slay the Spire, where that's the thing you cast and after you cast it, it's a it's a passive effect that remains on you. But weirdly, a character who gets a power in their deck doesn't have to play it on themselves. They can play it on one of your other characters. And for the most part, that doesn't make any sense at all because things like a warrior getting a power that means they gain energy every time they take a hit, you don't want to cast that on anyone else because your warrior is the one who's going to take the hits. Um, But the ranger has one that is, or hunter, sorry, uh, has one that every time somebody else plays a ranged attack, they gain a damage bonus. And that doesn't really make a lot of sense on a hunter because they're going to be the one doing the ranged attack. So instead, they play that power on somebody else and then they do the ranged attacks as well to boost their damage. And that, of course, synergizes brilliantly with the assassin thing I was talking about where like their damage bonuses count double and they have special attacks that can use them even more. And so there's all these little... I, haven't, I feel like I'm just scratching at the surface of that. That's the first time I've ever cast a power on someone who wasn't the person who owned the power in the first place. And I suspect there's loads more to discover there. So it's just a really exciting like playground for mechanics. Yeah, but the name's still really boring. <laughs> it is, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's like one step away from Game of War, which is the worst title I've ever heard. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but that, that's the thing of it. It's not just boring. It's also that it's sort of suggestive of a lot of kind of trashy mobile games or MMO mm. titles and that sort of stuff when it's when it's actually much more interesting than that yeah there's actually um uh i was trying to think like you know it doesn't really relate to anything i've played in the game like i I don't i'm not even aware of having gone on a trial like the main quest is about trying (laughs) to track down a missing elder from your village um and it's not somebody challenging you to a trial or anything and fire hasn't really come up that much (laughs) i mean there's a burning effect in the game but it's not not sort of central to it i was thinking about the fiction is like I don't know. The world is, it has a flavor to it. It's not completely generic. Um, uh, the races aren't orcs and I th- there's elves for sure, but I haven't seen an orc and my assassin is a race that I don't recognize. It's sort of a lizardy kind of scaly, um, spiky kind of dude. 
Um, so it's got a bit of a flavor to it. And I was thinking about like, like what has worked for me about that side of things. And it is, it definitely isn't the core appeal, but, um, it actually really reminds me of fighting fantasy, like those uh, choose your own adventure books, um, in a good way where those also weren't the most original worlds necessarily, but I guess it kind of got into my bones at an early age. Like that is, that is still my archetypal, like adventurer on a, on a quest in a fantasy land kind of thing that, that just kind of works for me on a, on a very, um, like instinctual level. And this brings that to mind. The overworld between battles it is rather than being Slay the Spire, like map of nodes, or sorry, I should call it the FTL map of nodes, because that was where it got popularized. Um, it's actually much more of an open world and you are walking around and you're choosing where to stop and um, uh, choosing whether to stop at, at various places. You have, if you wanted to, you could keep on stopping at every little ruin and every little village and, and getting quests and um, having side encounters that don't relate to your main quest. Um, and that does a lot to make it feel like an adventure. Um, it does, it does boil down to mechanics and cause it's a roguelike deck builder, you're going to focus on the mechanics. Um, but it does have that, that vibe and every now and then the moments like that kind of, um, just evoke the, the excitement of a fantasy adventure. Like I, there's one encounter where you can sort of choose to take on like a, a, a giant worm beast and, the presentation of the battles is very abstracted. It's it's a it's a arena that is sort of rendered like a three D environment, but then your people are just tokens, and they just have a picture of the the character's portrait is just on a circular token. So it doesn't even try and make it look like a model of the person. It, it's literally just a uh, a game board piece. Um, and the worm is three of those, and of course they're connected. And when it moves, the when the head one moves, the tail ones have to follow. And it's it's just kind of a, a fun gimmick sort of seeing something that's very something that would be very difficult to do as a 3d model or very difficult to kind of render and make sure it animated correctly and and everything once you reduce it to this abstracted tokens it actually becomes easier to do something complicated like that because uh, you know you as the player just accept that it's going to be three tokens it makes sense and then at least all these co- cool situations were like it managed to sort of snake itself around me and that meant I was technically surrounded. And there are certain mechanics that mean like, you can't do combo attacks when you're surrounded. And even though there's only one enemy, it's fair enough. That enemy is surrounding me. On all sides, there is enemy. <laughs> it might not be different thinking entities, but I'm, I sure am surrounded. Um, and that's obviously went badly for me. And then on another turn, I was able to add an ability called Crush, which does more damage the more different sides an enemy is boxed in on which is a really nice idea because it means, you know, it, the more cornered you are, the the harder this blow hits, which just kind of feels good as a mechanic. And this worm was kind of coiled in on itself. And also I had my my guys kind of on either side of it and I hit it with crush and it did like 16 damage, which is the most damage I've ever done with, with a single melee attack. And uh, it was because it had boxed itself in with its own body. I basically crushed its head into its own body. <laughs> <laughs> and it's got that, that magic where, you know, that is very on a real level, it's just a very bare bones mechanic. And, you know, I don't even know if the developers even thought about you know, whether the the worm's tail counts as, you know, separate enemies or counts as obstacles or whatever, but it's flavorful enough that when you do it, even though what you're looking at is very abstract, you're picturing the scene of crushing a worm's head against its own body. I really like the kind of um, booky aesthetic of Ring of Fire. 
but trials of fire. Trials of fire. Sorry, uh, but what I was going to say is it's a strong enough aesthetic that whenever I've searched for it over the last couple of years, I've searched for book of fire. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's time to do a question. One question. One question, because it is getting late and we are tired. <laughs> no other Brain's reason. tired. Brain tired. Alex, you are the wielder of the question. I've got the question. What is it? Uh, the question is from Tom Pickford. It's a Tom Pickford question. Tom writes, Dear snakes and snow globes, after listening to your discussion about when to put a game down uh, in episode uh, 363... That's two episodes ago. Uh, it got me thinking about my experience with roguelikes, particularly Invisible Ink and Into the Breach. After a successful run in each of these games, I felt that I'd seen their stories through to a satisfying conclusion. And even though both games are both are more mechanics-driven than narrative-led, I didn't feel the urge to return to them, despite having unlocked new ways to play. Another mental hurdle with me with Into the Breach was the meta-narrative where each new run supposedly creates a new timeline and billions of imaginary lives to uh, potential doom. This was apparently (laughs) too heavy an imaginary burden for me. I enjoyed my time with both games, but never went back to experiment with the new playstyles I'd unlocked. These games are meant to be replayed, but perhaps my response to put them down once I'd seen the end of the story was atypical, and this isn't a problem. However, if this experience is common to other players... Could too much narrative be detrimental to the longevity of a roguelike? It's a good question. Yeah, that's interesting. I I wouldn't have expected that reaction to Into the Breach because that is not a roguelike I think of as having too much narrative. <laughs> it's pretty <laughs> right. light on it. And I I'm such a mechanics oriented player that it wouldn't have occurred to me to like have second thoughts about starting a new campaign because you're dooming all these people unless you save them. <laughs> um, that framing is obviously. I mean, time. Like every roguelike is is tr- struggling. Every roguelike that wants to have a story is struggling with the same problem, which is that uh, you're going to go out and see the same stuff, and then you're going to die, and then it'll all be undone. Basically, like you might have made some overall progress, but we're going to reset you back to the start. And so, into the breach, its framing for that is well, you're time travelers, and if you fail, we'll we'll have to restart the timeline, and and you'll do it that way. Spelunky. It's a little bit unclear exactly how it works, but the caves supposedly reform themselves and you are, I don't know, something to do with the, the magic of the caves means that you start back at the start, um, which gets, it's really funny because that was obviously, I don't know, that that held up in, in original freeware Spelunky where it was a, a very lo-fi game. Um, and then in Spelunky 2, when it's like, it's your daughter going up there and she's responding to a letter from her parents uh, saying, hey, we're, we're, we're trapped on the fucking moon, dying endlessly, but it's okay. We're actually having fun. <laughs> it starts to, you really start to like scratch your chin about like, uh, what is that like exactly? Are you, do you feel the deaths? <laughs> uh, you, you can't escape. You've left your daughter behind and you're dying over and over again, but you love it. <laughs> um, yeah, it, obviously. So Hades, I think it, part of that game's success is that it sort of successfully found a framing where the narrative progression was outside of the run it was you you do the run then back at base the narrative progresses and um in some situations what you do in the run is you know affects what what progress you can make back in the narrative but for the most part there's there's lots of different threads to it and lots of different conditionalities but a lot of it is just going to tick along if you just keep playing you just keep dying you'll you'll keep forging through the story 
and that was a smart move i think to to make you um a if you win you haven't solved the narrative you haven't finished it um that's just one step along the path and b if you don't win it, it's rather than feeling like oh god i'm just back to square one you, you feel like the story may progress as well as your character being upgraded and everything um and then invisible ink is the one that makes most sense to me i think because that is it's sort of like xcom um in the sense that it's a campaign with a with a context and a goal and and it's long enough it's sort of I feel like an invisible link campaign is like eight, 10 hours maybe. Um, and at the end of that, if you won, I can totally understand people not wanting to start again because it's sort of like like an XCOM campaign. You win XCOM, you don't necessarily immediately want us to restart XCOM. Unlike a Splunky run, which is 30 minutes long and, and you die and you think, shit, I can do better next time. Let me do it again. Um, so yeah, that all makes sense. And... I think so I think run length is important and and then the story framing of like what is can you make progress in the story outside of the run I think putting the story outside of the run is is a smart move. Yeah. I think in Spelunky's example as well I you know I think there are quite a lot of players who were playing to discover the story there's obviously the lore stuff that's actually baked into Spelunky 2 like in a way that it isn't um HD um like my son just kept telling me lots of things about who the shopkeepers really are and that kind of thing. Oh, really? Which, uh, yeah, which is sort of, uh, wow, okay. I had no idea that's where Derek was going with all this. It's okay. blown the lid off the whole thing. <laughs> yeah. um, and so uh, that was actually one of the things that was drawing him through. Like he's very story-led, my son, so actually right. mechanics aren't as interesting to him as um, – getting to see new places and figuring out where they fit within the game's yeah. sort of history and world. That's that's the thing Splunky d definitely does well. Uh, like, the, obviously, there is no out of run in Splunky. There's kind of... In Splunky 2, there's a sort of a home base and some characters there, but story progression doesn't happen there, really. Um, and so the story... Even if you win Splunky in the conventional sense, you haven't... See there's a lot you haven't seen, and there's secrets still to discover. And those secrets... The whole thing is very light on story. But if there is any story, it's 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 in those secrets, right? It's kind of like yeah. the even back when it was, it's always been fairly uh, arbitrary series of non sequiturs in terms of like you know the key fits the chest <laughs> that makes sense. Then there's a weird eye in there, and the eye lets you see it doesn't let you see anything actually. It just it just lets you hear the black market and then the black market <laughs> and so on and so on. And there's a lot of a lot of interactions there where you would never guess it short of just either looking up on the wiki or well i've found this weird thing and there's only one other thing i know about so let's bring it to there and see if anything happens um and splunky 2 it's more story-ish and i know a lot of splunky 2 secrets in particular are based on on legends uh, that have have you know real world lore to them um but i wouldn't say that that is how you i wouldn't say that investigating the secrets is a case of unfolding a story uh, or that that you progress in the story by understanding that law because I actually did the opposite where I got, I was sent down a total red herring path because I looked up the bow. I can't remember the name. It's the bow of, of, and then someone's name. And that is a real legend. And I looked up the legend and it has a very particular uh, thing that happens in that legend. And I, I could think of a way to enact that within Spelunky's framework. And I went and did it and it has no effect. <laughs> it's completely irrelevant. <laughs> There's, there's probably something to like argue, and I think I've, I think this is what my son actually did. He, 
once he'd found, discovered uh, a lot of these secrets, that's when his interest actually came, you know, uh, peeled away. He played hmm. Splunky HD for longer. And I think that's because it was a bit sparer, but there was more mystery to it in some ways because, you know, it didn't actually re- explain anything in in that way. Right. For him, you know, I think he plays games in a very specific way. Well, I think to that point, like, <clears throat> roguelikes aren't that different to other kinds of open-ended games or sandbox games when it comes to the way that you pick, piece together your understanding of the world. Like, the time the, the time reset or kind of death reset system is, is quite specific. And obviously, if you're telling a story about a particular character um, or continuity, of ex- you're expecting kind of continuity of experience, and obviously you end up telling a time loop story of one one kind or another whether what whatever kind of genre is is laid on top of that but more broadly like you know the they are a good way of encouraging you to um become very familiar with a particular set of environments and creatures and learn to pay close attention to the way those creatures behave and what that might ultimately might mean and start to intuit the history of the world from that um and i don't think that's actually that dissimilar to something like a sandbox game or minecraft or something like that where you start to maybe minecraft's not a great example for this but where you start just because you know even though it's not strictly a roguelike you're still um encountering and re-encountering um archetypal situations over and over again encouraged to kind of pull similar or different information out of them every time and there's some ambiguity there which prompts further further investigation and experimentation and i think that's quite a good way of unfolding the story of a world really through a game like this or through any game to be honest and i can kind of understand why jack's experience was the way it was based on that yeah. right that like spelunky one it's the same mechanic it just maybe doesn't have answers and that can be compelling in its own way yeah yeah i think it also helped him focus on actually with the real meat of the game you know which is which is the mm. game game and i think that spelunky 2 he got very focused on oh, there's a new place I can go. And there's another new place I can go. And he actually started to focus on the novelty more than he did the the pure game. I mean, it's difficult yeah. to say because obviously he was playing a game that was very familiar and he'd already proved himself and understood the fundamentals of, mm. of, of Spelunky. It's difficult to say. But, you know, so maybe I'm being tempted to the, to the a little bit too much to think that that story played a role in, in the fact that he didn't play Spelunky 2 for as long as Spelunky 1. I think maybe there's just a difference. Like, it's interesting that you draw out novelty there because I think, <clears throat> like, um, if you if that is if that is the kind of the the value proposition of entering a new area to a player, that it's necessarily going to put a limit on their investment in the game, right? Like, they're going to hit a point where there is nothing new to see. And, exactly. And the great strength of a roguelike is the promise of different combinations of elements. I don't necessarily, um, you know, and that's what creates like interesting mechanical challenges or, or gameplay situations or whatever. I don't necessarily can think of a game off the top of my head that has achieved that in an interesting way with narrative, where you might see elements in a different <clears throat> combination that opens up some pathway for you in terms of your understanding of the world. But that would probably be the the next step, right? The way to kind of um, extend that longevity further. I think I think Splunky One achieves what it achieves in that regard because it doesn't have any answers. Yeah, but that is also limiting in long term in terms of what it could potentially say or or the way it could potentially reward that investment. Yeah. I so agree, Griftlands yeah. is a really interesting example here. Uh, Clay's game, um, hmm. 
which is a, a roguelike deck builder um, that is very story driven. And it's each run is you're playing, there's three characters. Each character has their own story that you play through. They're very different. Um, and, but it is a story, you know, you're trying to defeat this person who wronged you in the past and at the end of it, you defeat them. And so I'd be curious if this questioner, once they've done that once, if, if they'd be done with that character. And Griftland sort of still caters to you there, I think, because it will take you quite a few runs to tr to accomplish that. And even once you have, you've got two more characters to then play and play their own stories, and those are totally different. Um, huh. But I, it was a bad mix for me. I do like the game, but ultimately, I my I came away from it thinking you probably wouldn't make a Griftlands two, you know, in this template. If you're going to make another game like this, you'd sort of you'd adapt, I think, um, because for me. It, it hits the exact problem that that um or you know it hits up against the reason why people don't do this why you don't make a very story driven roguelike is because you're going to play a roguelike a lot of different times and story the second time through is less interesting and it has it it takes a good stab at branching and and mixing up elements it's got this idea of like each character has an attitude to you and then they can just be like dislike hate love um and those confer mechanical perks to you or, or debuffs and those people can be present like in a bar so that when you have a fight with somebody else, if some of the other people in the bar already like you, they'll join in and that will affect the fight. And that stuff, is, it's there. It doesn't end up being primary for me. And it's also hard to control. You often like, you know, if, you, if you're fighting somebody out in the wilderness and uh, it's, you know who they are and they have friends and you know who their friends are, it's if you spare them when you defeat them, then they run back and tell their friends and they, and they hate you. And, and if you kill them, then their friend hates you for killing them. So it kind of, it ends up being like, well, either way, it's just like somebody hates me. I don't really have a, it's not, I'm not really piloting the story here. I'm just kind of like making quite arbitrary decisions. So for me, it wasn't a great mix and it definitely didn't do the thing of pulling the narrative outside of the run. The narrative lives within, inside the run. Yeah. Well, I think that's it. Hmm. If Tom, if you could, uh, Tom Fick, Pickford is the writer of the, the, uh, that question. Uh, if you could play Grifflands. <laughs> Grifflands. <laughs> Grifflands. Alex, you're all right. You're all right. Are we ending That's the New York started? Grifflands. Yeah. <laughs> uh, um, if, you, if you do play Grifflands and uh, you want to let us know how you do approach this story, that'd be interesting to hear. Yeah. But uh, otherwise, I think that's, that, that's, that's, that's the 365th. Mm, that's the full wow. year. Wow. What a long... It's almost as if there's year. one for every day of the year. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if... What a year RTX, that would be. I don't know if RTX Voice just cancelled the Raspberry I just blew. <laughs> I think no, it no, might have that done. That came through. Oh, good. Good. <laughs> it's actually, it's, it's a bit like the Xbox 360, but it's five out. <laughs> oh. It's like a belt. <laughs> I wonder if the RTX AI is smart enough to fix this. <laughs> I don't think it's it is. No one can fix this. No. To fix your friends. That's all the Grifflins we've got time for. <laughs> if you'd like to, if you'd like to send us your, your musings on video games, be they Grifflins or otherwise. You can do so by emailing us at questions at creightoncrowbar.com. You can also tweet us at creightoncrowbar. Will we check? <laughs> I don't know, and I'll never tell. If you'd like to support the podcast on Patreon, as, as several of you already do, thank you very much for your support. You can find out more about that, patreon.com forward slash creightoncrowbar. I've got a website, 
crateandcrowbar.com, where you'll find episodes much like this one. A year's worth, you might say. Um, more than that, actually, if you count all of the lock-ins and specials and spin-offs and other things. More than a year. Um, by about two weeks, probably, let's let's say. Um, what am I talking about? Oh, yeah, <laughs> Discord. There's a link on it, definitely. There's a link on the website. You click that, loads Discord, join that. There's friends. Hooray. Uh, if you want to find a vi- video with a podcast in it, youtube.com. If you want to find videos with this <laughs> podcast in it, youtube.com forward slash Crate and Crowbar. Um, it's the world's second most popular website. <laughs> I've been Chris Thurston. I've been Tom Francis. I've, I've been Alex Wilshire. Oh, yeah! <laughs> <laughs> I win! <laughs> and I've been Graham Smith. Thanks for listening, everybody.